Well, please take your Bible tonight and turn, if you would, please, to Acts and chapter number 5, Acts and the 5th chapter. This is Sermon 11 in our series of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5 and verse number 1. Tonight we're going to consider this, the danger of partial surrender. The danger of partial surrender. Surrender. There's a transition that takes place in chapter 5 and in the course of the preaching. We'll look at the context that's related to chapter 4 and why it begins this chapter by saying, but a certain man, obviously that's connected to what's above in chapter 4. Let's read verse 1 through 11. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price. His wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him. And carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter asked, or sorry, answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt The Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. The danger of partial surrender. May God bless the reading of his word as you're seated. We'll get into the message tonight. This may be the first time for some to hear this story and by the reading of it you can tell it's a very serious account by what took place. I have shared with you before that my mom often asks, so what are you preaching tomorrow? And so I said, well, uh, tomorrow morning I'm preaching on the plagues of Egypt that took place, the pestilence, the uh, boils, and the hailstorm. And then that night I'm preaching about when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. And so I said, sounds pretty encouraging, huh? Yep. 
You know, there's parts of the Word of God that, that comfort us, that encourage us, and there's parts of the Word of God that warn us and exhort us and correct us and convict us. That's the nature of the Word of God, isn't it? And so, um, you know, as we would consider, you know, from this morning that, um, that Pharaoh had a plagued heart. He was vacillating, going back and forth, and, and just the, um, the plagues that built up in his life. And then you read a passage like this, and, you know, really, I think, in fact, both of them, it's, it's interesting to me just some, at times how that what we study in the morning is, is somewhat connected to what we study at night. There's a correlation between the two, and in both of these accounts, there's an emphasis about fearing and that fearing God. It's a healthy fear to have a a reverence for God, to realize the holy and righteous nature of God, and to see that God is very serious about uh, His direction for our lives. And it's not a take-it-or-leave-it type of a proposition, like if you do, then that's great. If not, uh, that'd be fine. No, it's, it's really serious what we consider from the Word of God uh, as we think about our lives. And so tonight, I want to challenge us all to consider uh, the danger of partial surrender. There's something that's connected here uh, to this account as we get into it that I believe you'll see, but the danger of partial surrender. And I hope that it would be just a warning for all of us but it may be that there's someone here that maybe is not completely surrendered to God. Tonight would be a good time for you just to surrender all. You know the song, I surrender all, all to uh, Jesus. I surrender all to Him. I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him. In His presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Those were the words of Judson Van uh, Deventer in 1896. He was struggling between having a career in the arts and and a call of God on his life towards uh, evangelism, being an evangelist. And and after a time of struggle, he did just that. He surrendered all, and in fact, wrote this song um, out of that experience, having surrendered all. You know, you could write, rewrite this. I've heard some um, who have maybe rewritten it this way or have lived it this way. Some to Jesus I surrender. Some to him I hesitantly give. I will sometimes love and trust him in his presence occasionally live. I surrender some. I surrender some. Some to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender some. Well, there's great danger. There's great danger in just surrendering some. The church at this time had been working together in harmony. We saw that in chapter number four. And and there's great grace that was upon them. And and yes, they were encountering opposition. We saw that if if we just reviewed here for a moment, uh, they... Peter and John had healed the lame man, and, and people had come to see what had taken place there. They were amazed at, at the sign miracle that had taken place. It was evident, evidence that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was still alive. Well, the Sanhedrin, in particular the Sadducees, did not like uh, the results of that, and they threatened Peter and John that they would no longer speak in his name. And so we, we saw this, that when the church encountered 
opposition to the gospel, they took a God-honoring course of action. They took a God-honoring course of action. I just want to reiterate that because you're going to face problems in life, and it's right that you and I would take a God-honoring course of action because God can bless a God-honoring course of action. What was that God-honoring course of action? Well, we saw that they dealt with the problem as it was. They did not overlook it. They did not minimize it. They did not exaggerate it. They just simply did this. They dealt with the problem as it was. That was number one. Number two, they took the problem as it was to God as he is. I thought about that a little bit more. That's the right way to go about it. Take the problem that you have as it is. Don't minimize it. Don't exaggerate it. Keep it in its context. But take the problem as it is and take it to God for who he is. And let him work in those regards. So that's what they did. And then they did this. They just simply returned to preaching and teaching the gospel. They returned to the work that God gave them to do. And thus, uh, as we consider the latter part of chapter 4, they were united when they could have been divided. They were unselfish when they could have been selfish. They were vocal when they could have been silent. It would have been easier to have been silent. They were generous when they might have been stingy. They were missions-minded when they might have been self-protective. You know, it's easier for us and natural for us to be self-protective, but God wants us to be missions-minded regardless of what opposition that brings. They prayed for boldness instead of deliverance. We'd be inclined to pray for deliverance. Oh, God, please deliver us from this. But instead of that, they prayed for boldness in the midst of it. And that's what God gave them. And they were focused on the problems of others rather than the problems that they were facing. Now, think about that just real quick. This is, this is pre-preaching, okay? But think about that. If you have a problem in marriage, if you have a mar- marriage problem, okay? Not if, but when. When you have a marriage problem, okay? What should you do? Well, deal with the problem as it is. Take that problem as it is to God as He is, and then just keep on track in marriage, and your marriage is directly related to your, the fact that you're a believer, and your marriage even, is even intended by God to be a reflection of Christ in the church, and thus it's gospel-centered. Or what if you have a problem with someone else, someone at work, someone in your family, a friend? What should you do? Well, deal with the problem as it is, take it to God as He is, and then get back to preaching and teaching the gospel. It'll work in every situation. That's what, that's what they did. And because they took a God-honoring course of action, God honored, and the place was shaken where they prayed, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spake the Word of God with boldness, and Satan's plan to hinder the gospel led to the further advancement of the gospel. You see that? If Satan could not defeat the church from without then he would attempt to hinder the church from within. That's his next move. Is everybody with me here? If he could not hinder them from spreading the gospel by an outward attack, then now his counter attack would be this. Let me work inside the church and thus hinder the work of the gospel. And in many ways, that approach of Satan has been much more effective in church life. 
It's not really been governmental opposition that has hindered the progress of the gospel as much as it has been a believer not doing what a believer is supposed to be doing within the body of a church. And so Satan, uh, this would be the first occasion of this, but Satan evidently had his way even with a member within the church, a member that I would believe would be saved and, and baptized member of this church. And so we must all take heed lest Satan should use your life and my, or my life to be disruptive to what God is doing here at Southwest Baptist Church. We must realize that, that that is a danger. The believers, as we see in chapter 4 and verse 32, were working together in harmony... That harmony and that unity was produced by the Spirit of God. In fact, Paul said in Ephesians 4 and verse number 3, I, I love this verse, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of, of peace. He says, endeavor to keep. It's your responsibility as members of a church to keep or to guard, watch this, the unity of the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? The unity of the Spirit. Well, it would be this, the unity that is produced by the Spirit. You see, I thank God for the unity that we enjoy right here. As brothers and sisters in Christ, the harmony that we enjoy here, the singing, the, the, uh, the fellowship that we have, I'm telling you, what we ought to do is this, thank God. You and I did not produce this. This is not here because we have a certain type of facility. This is not here because we have a certain staff. This is not here because we have a rich history, though we do, and I thank God for those things. This is not here because we have great teachers and great Sunday school classes, though we do, and I thank God for those. But listen, if we're experiencing unity as a church, which I believe that we are, and I thank God for it, then the reason we're experiencing that unity as a church is not because of us, except that we have responsibility to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. But the reason we're experiencing unity is the same reason they were experiencing unity back then. It's the Spirit of God that was working in their hearts and working in our hearts. Because left to ourselves, we're selfish and we'll mess this up. Yeah. Any disunity then would not be the result of God's work in the church, but it would be the result of the flesh at work in the church. But I'm telling you, these folks, they cared for one another. They cared for one another. Look at uh, verse 32 again. The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And they gave, with great power, gave a witness of the resurrection in verse 33. And so it, it shows us here that they, they had this type of a ministry, a one another type ministry. When the Spirit of God is involved, it'll be a one another kind of ministry. It'll be a caring kind of ministry. Love will be at church between brothers and sisters of Christ. Even in an independent fundamental Baptist church, there can be love there. In fact, really there should be. We kid around and tease about that, but really this is the Lord's church and there ought to be harmony and there ought to be unity between believers. There most certainly should. And we don't have to watch this. You don't, we don't have to set aside doctrine to have that. In fact, it's the doctrine of the Bible that actually produces the unity. 
And so they had the right doctrine. They had the Spirit of God that saved them, called them out, that was, had changed their life radically, that it connected them one to another. It doesn't take long for you when you are maybe even visiting another, another sister church to get connected to some of the people there in the church and to almost sense a, an instant connection with them. What is that? Well, the Spirit, same Spirit of God that convicted you of sin and saved you from sin is the same one that saved them. And thus, we be brethren. We be brethren, and how pleasant and how wonderful it is that brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And that's what they were experiencing. There was the unity that was produced by the Spirit, so much so that they were thinking of one another. And if any of them had need, then they were willing, voluntarily willing, to sell their possessions, to sell their properties, to give to that brother or sister who had a need. They did that on a volunteer basis. You see, there's the difference between communism and believers having Jesus in common. Communism will never work. I'm talking about in the world, in form of government, communism will never work because man at his very nature is self-centered and looks only for himself. But when Jesus moves in, and Jesus produces a love for the brethren, then you will voluntarily, and that's what's happening here. It wasn't, look, it wasn't that when they signed on or when they became a member of that church that it was, they were obligated, okay, now you need to sell your property. That's not a bad idea, huh? Okay, no, I'm just kidding. But that's not what they did. It wasn't like, okay, now if you join, you need to sell your property and give the church your money. That's not what they did at all. But what they did voluntarily is one brother or his family saw, you know, there's another brother here in the church that's having a difficult time. They're having a hard time making ends meet, maybe even directly related to their faith. I believe we ought to do something about that. And, maybe, and it, I believe it would work this way. The Spirit of God said to one of them, hey, you, you ought to even, you got that property there. You're not using it. Or maybe they were and go ahead and sell it anyways. That's radical, isn't it? Well, it's actually biblical. Not just radical, but that, that's how they lived. They were willing to do that. They, went, they were willing to go to that degree. And so that's, that's what they did in caring for one another. In fact, there was a man named uh, Barnabas. And his name means son of encouragement. And he lived up to his name. He was an encouraging believer. And, and he had a possession. And he sold it. And he brought it. And he, and he brought it to Peter and the apostles. And, and whatever brother had need... Then they distribute it to those that had need. You know, every now and then we'll take up a benevolence offering. And I'm glad that we can do that. And many of you give very, very sacrificially to help out a brother or sister in Christ. And many times uh, you don't even know what that situation is, but God knows what it is. And God knows how to meet that need. And I believe he, he has designed his church to meet needs even through the church. And I realize there can be some that maybe would take advantage of that or try to and and such. But look, here here it was in this in this pure form. Here was this church, these people that were brought together. Their lives were radically changed. They were under now the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. They loved him and they loved one another and they were giving and they were, in fact, they were sacrificially in a very generous way. They were giving to meet the needs of others. That's what this man Barnabas did. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, with Sapphira his wife, they sold a possession as well. Verse 2 tells us they kept back part of the price 
his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here was Ananias and Sapphira. They were among the families that also sold a piece of property of some sort to give to those that had need. But there's a difference. They kept back part for themselves. That word kept back means this. They put aside for oneself. They withdrew covertly. In fact, the word is only used three times in the New Testament. It's used twice here. And then it's also used in Titus chapter 2, and it's translated purloining, which would be embezzlement. They embezzled money, misappropriated funds. Peter confronted Ananias about his deceitful financial dealing. Look at it again in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, evidently God gave Peter insight. Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart? Satan was at work in the heart of this, this believer. Was he saved? It's, I mean, it's not for me to judge or say, but, but he was a part of the church. We would assume that he was. Was he demon-possessed? No, you can't be demon-possessed and saved. But he says, Satan hath filled thine heart. So what does that mean? Satan hath filled thine heart. Well, what does it mean to be full of something? It means that you're controlled by. Uh, if we say, uh, be filled with the Spirit, or this man was full of Spirit, then we're saying he was controlled or governed by the Spirit. If, uh, if we say, watch out, he's full of anger, what that means is anger is controlling his life. Here it says, Satan hath filled thine heart to keep back. Satan has had an influence in your life. Satan can disrupt the life of a church through its own membership. That's what's happening here. What was this ungodly choice that Ananias and Sapphira, but at this point it's just Ananias that is in the presence of Peter. Evidently Peter was here and collecting the funds and Ananias came in and, and dropped off those funds and said, we've sold our property and, and just like Barnabas gave all he had, then we've given all that we have. Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart? And to keep back part of the price of the land. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? Verse 4, do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, wait a minute, Ananias. When it was yours, wasn't it yours? It most certainly was. It was his. Listen, Ananias was not obligated to sell his property. Does everybody understand that? It's very important to the story, to the account. He was not obligated to sell his property. It was voluntary. They were to do it of their own accord. Was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? in thine own power? In other words, he's saying this. Look, when you sold it, that was your money. That was your property before you sold it. This was your money after you sold it. You, in other words, Peter is saying this, you did not have to give this. You were under no obligation to give it. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? What thing? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? That thou hast, thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Okay, now look at verse 5. Here's a... Uh, let's see, I'm sorry, verse 3 again. He said, Satan hath filled thine heart to lie to who? The Holy Ghost 
In verse number four, he says, you've not lied unto men, but unto God. So that would be indication that the Holy Ghost is God. You see that? It's a little theology of the Spirit there. Okay? He is none other than God. You've lied unto the Holy Ghost. You've lied unto God. You've not lied unto men, but you've lied unto God. Peter is making very plain with him that you did not have to sell the property, and after you did sell it, you did not have to give it. In fact, you could have designated it and said, I want to give this much towards the need, and I'm going to keep the rest of it. But his point was this, be upfront about it. Be upfront about it. He wasn't, listen, Ananias was not motivated by grace. He was not motivated by sincere love for the brethren. He was not motivated by that. He was motivated by something else. What was that something else? I believe given the context of it and the connection to Barnabas, it may have very well went something like this. Someone might have said, and Ananias would have been present. Did you hear that Barnabas sold his property and gave the full amount to those that were in need in the church? Really? Well, bless his heart. Isn't that generous of him? That Barnabas, he's always encouraging people. Ananias said, you know, my wife and I have determined to do the same. Yeah, that's right. We're just really glad to help. Just like Barnabas, we're going to sell our property and we're going to surrender all. Peter, we want to give this amount. We sold our property and we want to give all that we have gained from that. We want to give it all to help those in need. You know, I would imagine at that point, Ananias would have expected that Peter would have been impressed. Here's a man just like Barnabas that wanted to do something for somebody else. But God gave Peter insight. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira was not necessarily that they kept back part, but that they acted like that they were giving it all. And thus their real problem was pretense. Their real problem was hypocrisy. They were acting like they were more spiritual than they really were. And God doesn't like pretense. God doesn't like hypocrisy. God doesn't like for you or me to use him to make ourselves look good. Ananias thought, I think I can look good. Here's my chance to look good in front of all the other believers. And, and what he was doing was disrupting the unity that was there among those believers by trying to get a little bit of glory and a little bit of credit unto himself. And for people to say, my soul, what a generous person Ananias is. What a giving individual. Well, he wasn't really as giving as he posed himself to be. He was a hypocrite. Two-faced is what he was. And he dropped dead. How does God feel about hypocrisy? It's pretty serious, isn't it? He was motivated instead of love. He was motivated by pride. He was motivated by recognition. 
he had a divided heart. He was motivated somewhat even by money. I'm going to keep back part for myself, but there's a little bit I could gain by, by making it look like I gave it all. Hypocrisy is being two-faced. It's secret disloyalty. Hypocrisy, someone said, is deliberate deception, trying to make people think we're more spiritual than we really are. I'm telling you, God did not put up with it then. It did not help the church back then. And it does not help the church now. And God doesn't put up with it now. Religious deceivers hurt the church. Pretenders hurt the church. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was that they put on a lovely front in order to conceal the shabby sin of their lives. You know, you drive down, uh, you drive down maybe I-35, or you drive out I-40, and you run across some of these casinos, and man, they make them look so elaborate, and they make them look like like you're in Paris or or Rome, and all these things. Yeah, I'll tell you what, what it is is it's just simply a facade. It's just a a bunch of fake facade is exactly what it is. It makes it look like that building is so grand and so big. And it is big. A lot of them are. They are really big. But it makes it look so grandiose on the outside. I'm telling you what it is. It's a whited wall. It makes it look good on the outside. But on the inside, there's dead men's bones. And then Jesus would say of those hypocrites of his day, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the word hypocrite literally means one who wears a mask. And when he's with certain people, he wears this mask and makes him look so spiritual. But then behind the mask is really a man that's given to selfishness and pride and and stinginess and and self-indulgence. And I'm telling you, God didn't like it back then and he doesn't like it now. And Jesus uh, spoke to those men, preached to those men, and, and called them scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites and a generation of vipers. He's very serious about us being real. Warren Wiersbe asked this question, if God killed religious deceivers today, how many church members would be left? Three hours later, Sapphira returned. We don't know where she'd been. I'm going to take a guess. She'd been gone now three hours. She had a little extra spending money. That girl went shopping. I'm almost sure of it. Three hours later, later, she returned. Peter asked her, did you sell the property for this much? Yes. Boom. Can you imagine those guys? I mean, they just got it done carrying out Ananias. Buried him in a sepulcher. It wasn't like, not like digging a grave. It was just they laid him in a tomb. They're on their way back. <laughs> How many more are we going to do? There's another one. She dropped dead. Ananias and Sapphira acted pious in the presence of Peter and the other Christians. And you may look good before other Christians, but God knows who you really are. No one likes pretense. Come on. None of us like to be fooled. I don't like to be fooled. I don't be, like to be lied to. I, I, don't, I don't want to deal in lies, and I don't like for someone to fool me or pull the wool over my eyes. It's very important in the life of a church that everyone in the church is real. 
that there's no guile here, that there's no hypocrisy here. Listen to what one individual said. The church can only thrive as the people of God if it lives within the total trust of all of its members. Listen, you've got to trust me as your pastor. And I realize some have had pastors who have, have dealt wrongly with funds or dealt wrongly in, in, in morality. And that is such a blight. That is such a disgrace. That is such a hurt to the cause of Christ. And that is a real deal. And that's why as, as those that are called of God and in ministry, that listen, if that's God's call in your life, God has called us to a place of blamelessness. We are not perfect, but we are to live blamelessly and to live very carefully and walk circumspectly. But listen today, that is tonight that is not just for the preacher it's for everybody in the pew to be who you really say to really be who you say you are and if you're something other than what you say you are that's confusing and it only hurts the cause of Jesus Christ the church can only thrive as the people of God if the lives within that church if there's trust within those members where there is that trust of unity or unity of trust that Oneness of heart and mind. The church flourishes in the power of the Spirit. But where there is duplicity and where there is distrust, the witness of the gospel fails. I'm so glad that I can preach this to you tonight and and be able to say to our new members class and to be able to say to you that I do, and I want to hurry to say, by the grace of God... I see in this auditorium real, true believers in Jesus Christ who are not perfect. We are not sinless. We are forgiven by the grace of God. But trying to live according to the word of God in a sincere way. Do we fall? Yes. Do we stumble? Yes. But listen, we have a faithful God who does help us. But let's be real about it. At the same time that I preach that, I, I fear that there might be some who may be feigning their religion. God is close to your mouth, but he's far from the heart. You may sing that you love Jesus, but your life does not really manifest that love for Jesus. Here's what we need to do tonight to make sure we don't end up like Ananias and Sapphira. Make sure your faith comes from the heart. And you're not living to try to impress somebody for what you could get out of it, but you're trying to live for Jesus because of who he is. Refuse to falsify information to make yourself look good. Let me say that again. Refuse to falsify information to make yourself look good. Let me get just a little bit practical here tonight. If you're filling out a resume, fill it out according to what is really true about you. Don't make yourself look better just in order to get hired. That is pretense. That is hypocrisy. God can't bless that. Here's what basically I'm trying to say tonight. Let's stay in a place where God can really bless. Don't lie about your homework. Did you read that assignment? Check yes or no. Sign your name to it. Hey, listen, your word ought to be true. But teens and college students alike and others may be tempted to falsify information because they don't want to look bad or they want to get a good grade. Hey, listen, just, just tell the truth even if it hurts. Tell the truth about your work hours. 
Don't put down that you worked a certain amount of hours if you only worked this amount of hours. Don't have someone clock out for you. Be honest about it. Give an honest day's work. If you are found to be in sin, then tell the truth. Don't tell one lie to cover up another lie, and then another lie, and then another lie. Listen, you don't have a good enough memory to be a good liar. Someone said. Tell the truth and you don't have to worry about it. We're living in a society that is not given to telling the truth. It's a dishonest society, but that ought not to be the case of believers. Don't lie about your church attendance. Don't lie about where you were on a given night. Don't lie about your income to make yourself look better. Don't lie about what you've been giving. Look, giving is grace-motivated. It ought to be. It's not God's going to get us if we don't. That's guilt-driven. It's not, I'm going to give this so I can get this. That's greed-driven. Grace, according to the New Testament, I'm sorry, giving according to the New Testament is according to grace. God's been so good to me, I want to give. It's a joy to give. I'm glad to give. You know, every year we have uh, some that fill out their faith promise card. Uh, I'm giving $1 million this year. <laughs> or $1 million a week. Well, typically we know that that comes from like the children's department and they're just being funny. Every year, I kind of wish, man, that'd be great. Look, that's between you and God. That's between you and God. And, and you're not, when it, you know, your tithe, your tithe, that's just, well, that's a given. That ought to be given. You get that? That's a given that ought to be given. And if you're not giving that, you're a thief. Yeah, that's strong words. That's what God said. The tithe ought to be given, but look what you do by way of moving ahead and what you do by way of faith promise giving, then that's, that ought to be motivated by grace and ought to be motivated by love for the brothers and, and love for your church and love for church planting worldwide and state and within the United States of America. Look, and, and, and like what Peter said, it's, it's yours either to give or not give, but don't falsify information just to make yourself look good. Be honest about it. I wrote down three times in my notes. Be honest, be honest, be honest. Because the danger of partial surrender is pretense. Why were they given to duplicity? Why were they given to hypocrisy? It's because in their heart they were not fully surrendered to God. And because they were not totally surrendered to God, they wanted to do something to help themselves. And it led to hypocrisy. They appeared to be completely surrendered. They pretended to be completely surrendered. I want to ask you tonight, are you completely surrendered to God or just do you have the appearance thereof? It's easy to tell people you're doing right when you're really doing wrong. Isn't that true? 
I know what it's like, and many of you do as well, and I want to thank God for saving us from that, and you'll save any from it that are plagued by it, but I know what it's like to go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday school even, and yet live a different way when I got to my middle high school, seventh and eighth grade. It's easy for people to think you're doing right when you're really doing wrong. I'm not proud of this, but there's things my parents still don't know. Sometimes when I'm back home, it comes out. Because my brother, right? How you doing? I'm doing good. Are you living right? Yeah. You know, it's easy to say that. But if you're really not doing that, you're saying something to make yourself look good, you ought to just be honest. It's easy to say you're reading your Bible when you're really not. It's easy to tell your accountability partner that you're being pure, that you haven't been on the Internet in a wrong way when you really have been. But I'm telling you, living one life is hard enough. Why in the world would you want to live two lives and try to keep one hidden? It'll be a big relief to you if you're living two lives to let that old life go and surrender all to God. Happy was the day in my life when I got rid of what I was hiding. Happy was the day in my life when I fully surrendered to God. I'm telling you, young people, I've never regretted a day of it. I've regretted a lot living by duplicity and hiding things and wondering if I'm going to get caught or not. No, that's a terrible way to live. It's a terrible way to live. It's a terrible way to live as a teen, as a college-age person. It's a terrible way to live as a dad or as a mom or as a husband or as a wife or as a worker or a Christian leader or as a church officer or a pastor. It's a terrible way to live. Be honest. Be real. Be sincere. I love the word sincere. The word sincere is a, the word itself, sin means without, and seer has the connotation of the background of wax. And, and back in the day when they had the vases and they would undergo heat, certain times that vase would crack and, and the person didn't want to lose a cell. And so what they would do is they'd take wax and they would fill in where it was cracked and then seal it or reheat it and then paint over it. And thus it was with wax, but it looked real good. But if you went to the market and you bought a vase or a vase and you bought that and the person said, this is sincere, it is without wax. That's indicating this. It's true through and through. Look, don't just try to cover up your fallacies. Let the Lord God work in your heart and help you to be sin. Sear without wax. It's easy to say you're not drinking when you really are. It's easy to sit in a pew and act like you're doing right when you're not. It's easy to give attention to reputation rather than character. You need to make sure tonight that your profession is matched up by backed up rather by your practice. You might be involved in a ministry, 
to gain recognition. It's the same thing. If you're involved in music to try to impress others instead of giving praise to God and admonishing your brothers and sisters, it's the same thing. A young man might get involved in ministry to try to impress a girl or her dad. But you need to serve because you love the Lord your God. Satan seeks to keep the gospel from moving forward by seducing God's people to render service to God that is less than total and that looks good, but it's not really good. Don't allow Satan to use your life to disrupt the unity that's in this church. Brother Rick McQueen's preaching down in the sixth grade department. My son's telling me he's preaching about spiritual armor out of Ephesians chapter 6. Do you know who that passage was written to? It was written to believers that they should know how to stand against the wiles of the devil. It was written to believers that they might be alert to the advance of Satan within the church. Listen tonight, we need to be alert to the ways that Satan tries to gain some type of an advantage right here in this church and right there in your life. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Those who fear the Lord live in sincerity. Those who fear people and want the applause and praise of men live in duplicity and pretense. Fear God and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. Father, we thank You tonight and pray that You would help us to sincerely sing the words, All to Jesus I Surrender. If there is one person here who may be hiding the fact that they're not even saved, I don't want to shake anyone up here tonight. It's not my cause to make someone doubt. But if there is someone here that has been telling others they're saved when they're really not, I pray you'd help them to get that right. And if there's people here tonight, even your own people, God, who in one way or the other have... Um, followed in this similar vein, maybe not in exact ways, of course, but in similar fashion. God, would you help us tonight? Lord, I want to be real, and I know that the people to whom I'm preaching tonight want to be sincere and real. And the people of the world need to see real Christians. There's so many that feign Christianity and use it for their own purposes. So many that that God are taking advantage of people. It's a shame, oh God. We pray you'd help us to be honest and real. Help us to love you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.